Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, hello. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by italki, which is a really useful and convenient service which you can use to get some English speaking into your life as regularly as you want. Basically, the way it works is that you sign up with italki and you kind of search through all the teachers and community tutors that they have. Teachers generally are, are slightly more expensive because they will provide you with uh, language tuition in your target language, which I imagine is English, but they have lots of different languages available. Um, and uh, community tutors are not uh, teachers, but they are native speakers of the target language that you're looking for. And uh, they are there to basically talk to you and give you any assistance uh, that they can uh, with your um, acquisition of the language you're attempting to acquire. And uh, that's great because, you know, if you're motivated and you, you're slightly autonomous and you're just looking for people to talk to, friendly people who are willing to share their language with you, then that might be a, a nice option. And generally, uh, that's a cheaper option as well. Um, so, you know, check out italki. It can be a really good way of pushing your fluency, engaging in regular communication, which is just really, really important and useful for taking your English further and further. Okay, and don't forget that if you use my offer, uh, italki will send you a voucher, which is equivalent to about $10, which is worth about one lesson, I think, with some of those teachers. Um, and to get that offer, just go to teacherluke.co.uk slash talk or click an italki logo on my website. Right then, so this is a brilliant episode. I'm really happy to uh, present it to you because... Um, well, personally, I really enjoyed this one. I think you're really you're really going to enjoy it too. So hold tight, listen to the whole thing. There's part two as well, which will be coming soon. Um, all right, then. So that's it. Here's the jingle coming right now. You're listening to Luke's English podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for choosing to listen to this episode of my podcast. I'm particularly pleased to be able to present this episode to you. It is, in fact, a privilege for me to say that today on this podcast, I'm talking to Professor David Crystal. I'm now going to give you a quick introduction just to make sure that you're all fully aware of the calibre of this guest and to emphasise to you just how lucky we are to have him on the podcast today. According to The Guardian newspaper, David Crystal is the world's foremost writer and lecturer on the English language. He isn't an English teacher, but he is an expert on linguistics. That's the study of language and all the issues relating to it. David Crystal has a worldwide reputation and has published something in the region of 120 books, including numerous academic reference works and encyclopedias of language, 
and books for the general reader covering topics such as English grammar, spelling, punctuation, accents, connections to Shakespeare, the influence of technology and the development of language throughout history. He's currently patron of the International Association of Teachers of English as a Foreign Language, that's IATEFL, and patron of the Association for Language Learning. He's president of the Society for Editors and Proofreaders, and he's president of the UK National Literacy Association. He's also honorary vice president of both the Institute of Linguists and the Royal College of Speech and Language Therapists. He's Honorary Professor of Linguistics at the University of Wales. And in 1995, he was on the Queen's Honours List when he was awarded the Order of the British Empire, the OBE, for services to the English language. The OBE is the second highest honour which you can receive from the Queen, the highest being the knighthood or damehood. So, He's Britain's favourite language expert, and he regularly makes appearances at literary festivals and teaching conferences. He appears on British radio and television. He writes articles for newspapers and magazines, and he researches all kinds of language-related topics. But the main thing that he does is to write books. And some of his most popular books include these titles. The Cambridge Encyclopedia of the English Language, The Oxford Illustrated Shakespeare Dictionary, The Story of English in a Hundred Words, You Say Potato, The Story of English Accents, Written with His Son Ben, Wordsmiths and Warriors, The English Language Tourist's Guide to Britain, Written with His Wife Hilary, Texting, The Great Debate, Pronouncing Shakespeare, The Globe Experiment, a fascinating project investigating how English was pronounced by the original actors in the Globe Theatre when Shakespeare was alive, spell it out, the curious, enthralling and extraordinary story of English spelling, just a phrase I'm going through, My Life in Languages, which is both his autobiography and a highly accessible introduction to the field of linguistics. And then from this year, Making Sense, The Glamorous Story of English Grammar. Uh, many of those titles can be purchased as ebooks from David Crystal's website, which is davidcrystal.com, or from any good bookseller. There are also audiobook versions which are read out by the man himself. Uh, David Crystal's writing is clear, entertaining, informative, and simply a pleasure to experience. The same can be said about his public speaking. I'm always impressed by his ability to take a complex academic subject like linguistics and turn it into the sort of thing that anyone can understand and enjoy. I met David once at a teaching conference where he presented Andy Johnson and me with an award for a presentation that we did. And I had a chat with him afterwards and I was delighted to discover how down-to-earth and friendly he is and I've always wanted to interview him for this podcast, but it's only recently that I actually plucked up the courage to ask him, and thankfully he agreed. David Crystal is nothing short of a national treasure, and I can't believe I'm talking to him on my podcast today. Right, so I think you get the idea now. He's kind of a big deal for anyone interested in language and language teaching. And so, without further introduction, here is my conversation about language with Professor David Crystal. Hello, we're talking about language. Sit down, let's have a chat. Hmm? A bit of a chat, sir. A bit of a chat, yes, Roger, just a bit of a chat. 
About English as a global language. This is a conversation. Yes. I would like to talk to you. Okay, let's talk. Let's have a quick conversation, huh? What do you think? That's what we're gonna do. We're gonna have a good time. We're gonna have a conversation about language. So, hello, David Crystal. Well, good day to you. First of all, I would just like to say that I'm delighted to have you on my podcast, and I'm sure that so are my listeners who are all over the world. There are so many things that I could ask you. I have a list of questions here, which I'm going to fire at you, if that's okay. Yeah, that's fine. (laughs) Okay. Some of these questions are mine. Some of them come from my listeners. And we're going to start with some of mine. And so my first question is um, about uh, one of your most recent books. You you wrote a book which was published earlier this year called Making Sense, The Glamorous Story of English Grammar. So my question is, perhaps rather predictably, um, is grammar really glamorous? <laughs> yes. Yes, it was a bit of a daring uh, subtitle, wasn't it? Um, but it's, uh, it was very deliberate and, and very true to life. I mean, what people don't realise is that the word uh, grammar and the word glamour actually have the same etymological origin. Mm. You know, once upon a time, they were the same word. And they, because grammar was felt to be something uh, done by the learned people who knew how to write, and writing was itself a bit of a magical kind of thing. You know, it developed all sorts of glamorous associations, and then the two words split in meaning. The way people think about grammar traditionally doesn't seem glamorous at all. I mean, when I was in school, the way I was taught grammar was very unglamorous, and I found it boring, just like most other people did. If you think of grammar as something that you take a sentence and you parse the sentence into its parts, you know, this is a subject and that is a verb and that is an object. And uh, you have to know the name of all the parts of speech and you have to know what a preposition is and you have to know what a conjunction is and so on. And that's it. Mm. Just naming the parts. Then it's not glamorous. That's deadly. That's dull. Uh, Grammar is not that's not grammar that, that's where grammar might start but it's certainly not where grammar finishes you know the analogy i like to use luke is mm. with with uh, if you're, you're learning to drive okay so you go to your driving instructor or the driving test man and uh, and you're taught this you say that that is a brake that is an accelerator that is the uh, indicator. Push it up, left, and you go left. Push it down, right, and you go right. And you go learn all the parts of the motor car and so on. And at the end of it, he says, do you know all those parts? I'm going to test you now. Get them all right. Yeah, you've got them all right. Good. Now you know how to drive. <laughs> and, of course, it's absurd, isn't it? Yeah. Because knowing how to drive means a thousand other things than simply knowing the parts. Uh, apart from anything else, you, you want to know where you want to drive to and, and why you want a car in the first place and what's so exciting about driving anyway. And it's exactly the same with grammar. If the only thing you know about grammar is the names of the parts of speech and things like that, and you can analyze a sentence very well into its bits, well, where are you going to drive your grammar to? And, and, and why have you learned it? And what's the function of all these bits and pieces you've just been learning? That's where grammar starts. Mm. And to make it glamorous, you've got to add two dimensions to it. You've got to add a semantic dimension. In other words, you've got to ask of every grammatical question, what does it mean? Mm. What does it mean to use an adjective? What does it mean to have a word order of a certain kind? What does it mean? And then the second thing is you need a, a pragmatic perspective. This is what I talk about a lot in the book. Mm. And the pragmatic perspective adds the question, why? 
why are you using that particular construction in a particular way? Why did you put an adjective in there? What effect did you hope to gain by using that adjective? And as soon as you start asking the question why, you find yourself out on the streets. You find yourself looking around at the way grammar is used, reading novels and poems and all the exciting things about language and finding out why the authors wrote their language in the way they did. Mm. Why did they use an active construction instead of a passive one? Why did they use a singular instead of a plural? Why did they put the thing in that particular tense rather than that particular tense? And as soon as you start exploring that kind of thing, you get sucked into the real world of language. And that's where the glamour lies. I see. Okay. In, in my experience, a lot of learners of English as a second language feel a bit bored or intimidated by grammar, which leads some teachers out there to say things like that you can learn English without grammar, that you can learn English without thinking and so on. Do you think it's possible to learn English as a second language without studying the grammar? Well, if you, it depends if you start early enough, I suppose, because if you take the analogy of first language acquisition, um, all the children that... Uh, learn English or any other language for that matter, do so uh, instinctively, naturally, without consciously knowing the grammar that uh, eventually um, drives the whole learning process along. Mm. A distinction has to be made between knowing grammar and knowing about grammar. Right. Uh, that's the important thing, I think. Um, you can certainly uh, learn any language without knowing about the grammar of that language or about anything else for that matter, the pronunciation or, or the vocabulary or anything, um, just by the process of, of living the language, of being there, of having the opportunity and the motivation and uh, to, 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 to pick it up. In, in the traditional kind of way. Right. But if you're not in that position of immersion, if you like, mm. um, then the fact that we're adults learning language means that we have certain cognitive abilities that we don't have when we're kids, um, certain strategies for learning, certain types of memory skill and all the rest of it, which we can bring to bear on the learning acquisition process. Mm. And this is what adult learners like to do. So it actually helps me to know that there is a rule which forms a particular type of sentence in a certain way, rather than having to wait to hear a thousand examples of it in order to intuitively work it out for myself, you know. Right. And that saves a huge amount of time, um, especially when there are exceptions to the rules, and there always are. Uh, and, uh, and, and so that kind of uh, conscious awareness, knowing about grammar, I think is an absolutely invaluable um, facet of the whole whole learning process. But once again, it depends how it's done. Yeah. If you're just taught these rules in the abstract, as it were, without seeing how they apply to real life situations, this was always the point behind that old communicative approach to language, wasn't it, years mm -hmm. ago? Yeah. Um, then it, it uh, one can sometimes fail 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 to see the point. The sort of thing I'm thinking of is, you know, if you're, if you're taught all the tenses at once, for instance, you know, right. and you're very good at switching between the present tense to the past tense and knowing all about the present perfect and things like this, and you've got it all up by heart in your head and you know all the rules and everything, or you've learned how to change an active into a passive and a passive into an active and you know the rule and it's in your head and you think you've learned it. Well, you haven't, because until you know when and why and where actives as opposed to passives are used and vice versa, and when and why and where present tenses are used as opposed to present perfects and so on and so forth, 
then you haven't really begun to understand those rules at all. Okay. Now, I know that you're not actually an English teacher, but do you have any tips for, for learners of English who would like to improve their grammar? No, I don't. I mean, I mean that that is the serious point. I am not a teacher. I have yeah. never worked in a classroom ever right. um, teaching English or any language for that matter uh, to little ones or to medium sized ones or to big ones. Uh, my English teaching experience is entirely a matter of, first of all, um, teaching English, uh, teaching about English to teachers who are on service courses or, or whatever it might be or going around the world and talking to groups of teachers in the various places I end up in. Yeah. And secondly, doing a fair amount of observation in classrooms as I get the opportunity to do so and seeing how teachers work. And if I have any tips at all, it, it's based upon simply observing what I've seen teachers do. So I don't have my own personal experience mm. um, of offering tips other than the obvious linguistic -y kind of tips that come from me as a linguist, right. namely. If you're if you're teaching something, you have to know what it is. Um, and that means knowing as much as possible about how the, what the English language is, how it works, how it changes in particular, keeping up to date with what with what's going on. Right. Remembering that the language of the classroom is not necessarily the same or the language of the textbook, for that matter, mm. is not necessarily the same as the language that your students are going to encounter in the 90% of the time when they're not with you in class, but are outside in the real world, online, for instance, and being aware of the differences in language that you encounter there. You know, that kind of general advice is what I offer, often yeah. say, but it's not the same as knowing as a tip for teacher in the usual sense right but i think your your advice or you know the things you say about um really getting under the skin of grammar and under you know finding the glamour of it being that you know you've got to see the the purpose you know the uh, the reason why a certain bit of grammar is used i think that's something that learners of english can take and you know for example to realize that uh, when you're studying grammar, you've got to constantly look at examples of it being used in context and to kind of understand the reason why a particular form is being used, which kind of informs you as to, you know, the, the, the function of, of these bits of language that you're trying to, uh, you know, a acquire yourself. So kind of looking at language in, in examples and in context. Yes, and, and it does help, especially when you realise that a lot of these answers aren't immediately obvious. Um, I mean, it's perfectly obvious, for example, uh, wh why you should use a, a plural rather than a singular noun. I mean, because the distinction between one and more than one is a pretty obvious thing yeah. that uh, and hardly needs to be told about. But it's a different matter when you take a distinction like, say, between active and passive, and you say to people, why, why do you use the passive? I mean, if you take two sentences like the cat chased the mouse and the mouse was chased by the cat, the two sentences mean the same thing. Mm. Um, and so why have both, you see? And exploring the reasons for the passive rather than the active takes us into a, a, an interesting semantic world and an interesting pragmatic world that isn't immediately apparent. You know, you have to realize that the reason for the passive is that it enables you to talk about an action without having to say who did it. Right. So you can say the, the, the mouse was chased, full stop. Yeah. You have to say by the cat. And so, and that's the main distinction. And so the next question is, what are the circumstances in real life 
where you want to say that something happened without wanting to say who did it. And now you find yourself going into a world where people want to be impersonal, where they want to avoid responsibility for, uh, you know, saying what an action is and, and all that. You know, yes. you walk down the street and you see a sign saying entry prohibited. Right. That's passive. You don't see a sign saying I am prohibiting you or we are prohibiting you. You know, what is going on there? Why does the yeah. writer of that sign want to use the passive? Why are they not identifying themselves? Yeah. And that's when it starts getting interesting. Yes. Yes, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, you recently wrote a political history of grammar in the UK as a supplement to uh, Making Sense. And I wanted to ask you about the way in which people's relationship with language with grammar has changed over the years at this point now um, what relationship do you think the average british person has with grammar today in your experience mm. yes the context of this is that when i did the first draft of the book i included a number of chapters on the political history of of grammar in the uk in particular mm. um and the publisher said, uh, hang on a minute, uh, this book is going to be sold in America, where they're not interested in the political history of grammar in the UK uh, and other parts of the world. And he was right. And so what I did was I revised the book to the shape it's in, as you've seen it now. Mm. But now what shall I do with those um, historical and, and UK orientated chapters? So I thought, well, um, I'll, I'll publish them separately. I mean, obviously not in the conventional way, because who would publish two or three chapters of a X book, as it were? <laughs> yeah. um, but I put them online on my website, and that's where anybody um, listening to this podcast will find them. And what they do is they summarize the situation that's taken place over the last half century or so. So fast back to the 1950s and early 60s, when grammar was being taught in British schools, uh, and we were all learning about subjects and verbs and objects and prepositions and things like that and getting examined in our in our 16 year old examinations in, in presented with sentences and told to identify the parts of the sentence and all that mm -hmm. sort of. Thing. And then in the mid 60s, all that went out completely. Uh, so that for the next two generations, kids went through. Most schools, not all, there were always a few that did retain an interest in grammar, but in most schools you went through and you didn't get any grammar teaching at all. Yeah. And therefore these people, these kids who have now grown up and are in their middle ages or even older, some of them have become teachers, of course, and they've never been taught grammar at all. And so you've got, you've got this curious situation which still exists but was very strong in the 1980s and 1990s Two constituencies, one group of people, one group of teachers who had learned grammar in the old style and another group who had learned no grammar at all. And they were all teaching in the same school, you know, and teaching the same kids. And there was this complete distance between the two constituencies. And then in the 1990s, along comes the national curriculum. And by that point, uh, people felt that I mean, the powers that be mm. felt that the pendulum had swung too far, that the baby, if you like, had been thrown out with the bathwater. Um, there were uh, teachers who didn't know what a preposition was. Mm. I mean, that's absurd. That's like trying to do chemistry and not knowing what oxygen is or something like that, you know, it's gone too far. So the uh, curriculum decided to bring back in a language awareness program, which it did very successfully and started to introduce a modicum of um, grammar 
back into the curriculum. The problem was, of course, that there were hardly any teachers around who knew how to teach it. And this was always the problem with the curriculum. I used to spend hundreds of hours in the 1990s doing in-service courses for teachers all over the place, doing basic grammar, really. Yeah. And that's why I wrote a little book called Rediscover Grammar back in the late 80s uh, to try and f meet the need of teachers who knew that grammar was there because they were being reminded about it by their older generation of teachers who had done it, you see. Yeah. And, uh, and yet they had no inkling of how to set about it. Now, nice. fast forward to the present decade and grammar is now back with a vengeance at uh, primary school level. So that you get these new SPAG tests, as they're called, spelling, punctuation and grammar. Mm. And the kids are now once again being invited to take these little exams around about age 10, uh, where they are given a set of sentences and told to identify the preposition and all the rest of it. The clock is, in a sense, been turned back 50 years by this kind of approach, um, simply because the the insights into grammar that had developed in the early days of the national curriculum, that language awareness project, the semantics, the pragmatics and all of that are simply not there. You know, it's naming of parts once again. And that's why an awful lot of teachers at the moment are um, feeling very unhappy about the way these kids are being subjected to what is a rather mechanical analysis of of sentences. Nice. But at the moment, anyway, you get these three audiences now you see out there. The old style, the very old people now, most of us are in our sort of 60s, 70s or older, who remember the old days. The middle generation, some of whom uh, know a lot about grammar now, thanks to the new uh, approaches, and some of whom are still a bit uncertain about it. And then the, the, the modern generation, for whom uh, grammar is back, definitely, and they're really having to get to, term, get to terms with it, because otherwise they won't be able to meet the needs of the, um, of the exams. Yeah, m most of my friends don't really know anything about grammar. Um, and uh, I, I remember when I first did my, um, my first training course to become an English teacher, I didn't know anything about grammar either, which was kind of embarrassing. And I remember the first day... Uh, we had to do a little test and the test included questions like what's a noun and what's a verb and what's an adjective and I'm ashamed to say that I didn't know the answer to some of the questions so it's it's embarrassing that po people don't know the things like basic stuff like the parts of speech but um, yes it's interesting the way that grammar comes in and out and, and in the different ways and things like that. Now I was recently having a conversation about language with a couple of friends on this podcast and we arrived at several questions that we couldn't really answer. And I thought that you might be able to help. So my first question is fairly long, but it goes like this. People often complain about the so-called decline of the English language, citing things like poor grammar and punctuation, spelling, acronyms or text speak as evidence that standards of English are slipping. Do you agree? Are standards of English declining? And how do we even measure that? Mm. And the date of that particular question is uh, 2017, is it? That's right. Yeah. Yes, because you see exactly that kind of question has been asked 20 years ago, yeah. 40 years ago, 60 years ago, 100 years ago, and so on. Uh, if you hadn't told me it was 2017, I would have said it was 1921. <laughs> um, in my grammar um, uh, book that, that you mentioned earlier, I actually refer to some of the comments that were being made in the 1920s, heck, in the 1860s even, with uh, Henry Alford's um, uh, The Queen's English, um, mm. where they say exactly this. 
the English language is in a state of terminal decline. Nobody knows grammar anymore. And, and you get exactly the same sort of thing. So I deduce from that that um, th this is a malaise that is always present. Um, it applies, by the way, not just to grammar, but also to spelling mm. and punctuation and to pronunciation and, and indeed to uh, politeness, uh, discourse politeness and things like that to every aspect of language. But grammar tends to get more mentions than, than anything else. And the reason is probably because um, there isn't so much of it. Oh, let me put it this way. You know, you can complain about vocabulary, but there are tens of thousands of words that you can complain about or worry about. You know, it, it's yeah. huge vocabulary. Grammar is not so big. You know, it's just 3,000 or so basic points of grammar that you've got to master in order to be a reasonably competent speaker of, a, of English. Yeah. And so you feel that, um, that if you can't manage that, then something really serious is happening. So that's the general background to it. There's nothing new about this kind of complaint. Mm. What is new, of course, is the way in which people look to um, certain ex exam contemporary examples right. uh, in order to justify their complaint. So in the 1860s, for instance, the main um, uh, com complaint says it's all the fault of the Americans, you see. Amer Americans are now using the language disgustingly, and that's why English is deteriorating. Uh, now, today, in the example you've just mentioned, the poor old Internet gets the, an awful lot of the blame, and in particular things like text messaging and tweeting and the short messaging services. Uh, and uh, people who really should know better and who've never bothered to study the subject um, will immediately blame what they, seemed, what they sense to be uh, a reason for what they perceive to be a decline. Right. Now, when you actually go and start studying these things like text messaging, what you find is that uh, there's no correlation whatsoever <laughs> between the sorts of issues that people think of as a, are a sign of decline and the sort of thing that actually goes on in, in text messaging and, and the Internet uh, in, in generally. When you actually ask people and say to them, what precisely do you mean by decline? Give me an example of a feature that is declining. They will usually cite um, the old prescriptive rules uh, about English, about, you know, you should never end a sentence with a preposition or you should never split an infinitive or, you know, you should never use one thing rather than another. Yeah. In fact, rules that go back 200 years and where and the English language has survived perfectly well, even though people have been breaking these so-called rules quite regularly ever since. Yeah. Those, those are exactly the examples that we were talking about, actually. Those, those... Yes, and, and to take an example, you see, of, of, of follow that one up, never end a sentence with a preposition. So now we're talking about examples like, uh, th this is the man I was talking to, rather than this is the man to whom I was talking. Yeah. Uh, any modern person with a grain of sense realizes that what the distinction is here is a stylistic distinction that to whom is much more formal than who to, which is much more informal. Mm. And this goes back to the days when the only correct kind of English was thought to be the formal kind. Well, I think we should have got past that stage by now. And especially as when you point out that the informal usage, the this is the man I was talking to, has actually a history that is as old as the English language. You can trace it back to Anglo-Saxon times. Mm. And then you find it in Shakespeare, for instance. So in the f most famous speech in the language, to be or not to be, that is the question, yada, 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 or fly to others that we know not of, full stop. 
Shakespeare ends sentences with prepositions a lot of the time. Now, when you see that it's in literature like that and it has this ancient history, it's a huge puzzle to me to understand why the prescriptive grammarians of the 18th century decided to take against it in, in the way that they did. But the mindset of the time was such that they could only see that one kind of English was valued, that other kinds of English were not. You know, people used to point out to them, these early grammarians, and said, look, Shakespeare ends a sentence with a preposition, to which the answer was, well, there you are, you see, even Shakespeare gets it wrong. Hmm? Hmm? And if even Shakespeare gets it wrong, what chance have you lost? lost? Right. You won't make that mistake if you follow my rule, you see. And that mm. kind of mindset is still around today. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, what people often say uh, along these lines is that they, they, they say it's the death of the English language. I actually Googled that today, the death of the English language. And I came up, you know, found all these blog articles and articles on things like the Huffington Post and stuff, people writing about, you know, language decline and the death of the English language. And I was wondering, has a language ever completely died out due to what people call declining standards? Oh, yes. Um, the endangered languages of the world uh, are... Uh, often often illustrate that very situation. Now, an endangered language is, is a language which is spoken by so few people that it is likely to die out in the near future. Right. And what people sometimes don't realise is, is that almost half of the languages of the world are now seriously endangered in that way. You know, that's three or 4,000 languages out of the 6,000 or so languages that there are out there. But those, uh, th those languages are under threat, not necessarily because people have been sort of using them badly, right? No, but, but the, point, the point is that, that the reasons for them being endangered are many, many different reasons, of course. Mm. In some cases, it's a, it's a kind of linguistic genocide, you know, forbidding your language to be used. In some cases, it's... Uh, opting to use a different language because it offers you a better quality of life, for instance, and so your own ancestral language dies away. There are all kinds of reasons. But the point is this, that when a language is endangered, when another language comes along and starts taking over the functions of that language, what you do find is that people then um, uh, no longer find themselves able to use the language in in the wide range of ways in which they had previously used it. Mm. So, for example, to take um, my other language, Welsh, um, you know, Welsh has been an endangered language. It's actually rather successful at the moment mm. uh, because uh, of all the activism that has gone on in relation to Welsh. But a few years ago, when people were studying the Welsh in its state of decline, as it was at the time, what they found was not simply that English was taking over, but that some of the rules of the Welsh language were no longer being used by fluent Welsh speakers um, who had found themselves influenced by English and maybe by other circumstances. Uh, and the language and some of those old rules, which are classical Welsh, were no longer being used in the way that they used to be. And so that, that kind of situation, you do get a sense that the the structure of the language is declining a little bit. Not just grammar too, you see, Luke, but vocabulary as well. Mm. This is a much more common experience, isn't it? You, you, you listen to a, a foreign language um, being spoken, you suddenly hear all these English words coming up in the middle of it. Yeah, yeah. You know, and people talk about um, Spanglish uh, and Franglais 
and Wenglish, meaning a Welsh mixed with English. Mm. And you suddenly realise that an awful lot of the people who supposedly speak the language actually don't have as wide a vocabulary as they used to have because they're now using the English word instead of the traditional word. And so these are signs of decline, definitely. But there is no hint of that in relation to English, you see. English, on the contrary, is growing from strength to strength in terms of vocabulary, in terms of uh, new varieties of the language, new stylistic forms, new contexts in which it's used. Heck, it couldn't be otherwise for a global language spoken now by 2.3 billion people around the world uh, to be in any sense near death. (laughs) Right. So I suppose what people really mean when they say the death of the English language is they just mean that it's changing that it's it, it's the sort of the death of the language as it stands at this particular moment that it's changing it's not going to suddenly die out and stop being used it's just that it's changing in some ways and I suppose people feel a bit kind of um, uh, threatened or insecure by the idea that the language which they love so much which they use which they're trying to get a grip on is sort of you know morphing and you know evolving all the time well, um, that's a very, yeah, that's a very different situation. That's a curious use of the word death, then, isn't it? Really? Yes, yes, I think so. But I, I, I guess that they're using it wrong. Really, I, I disagree. I don't think that it's death. I think it's just change. Yeah, language change is is undoubtedly um, the shibboleth for a large number of people. And if they want to go and talk about death, well, you can't stop anybody doing anything these days, can you? But. It, yeah. But, but it's an irrelevant concept. Yes, change is always there. Change there has always been. The only languages that don't change are dead ones. Uh, a living language inevitably changes and goes in all sorts of unpredictable directions. You can never predict the future of a language because of this um, proliferation of contexts in which it hasn't yet been used in. And then one day it's going to be used there and suddenly you're doing things you never dreamt that you were going to do. Change is an inevitable feature of a living language. It bothers people, though, doesn't it? I mean, you know, for example... Well, it bothers some some people. Mm. It doesn't bother me. No. Well, that's one of my... A lot of people are like me, you know? Yes. It does bother a few people. Some people don't like change at all, you know? They don't like change in in the way the street signs are there. They don't like change in art. They don't like change in music. Well, there are some people like that, but I suspect that most people are a tad more flexible. Yes, I mean, it doesn't bother me either, but what does bother me is when people get so kind of upset and uptight about it because I think that they haven't fully... Well, I suppose, you know... They haven't really studied the linguistics, so they haven't got to the point where they sort of realise the way that the whole process works or something. Now, my mate Paul often says, as a bit of a joke, that because there are more non-native speakers of English in the world than native speakers, that we're actually the ones who are using the language incorrectly. For example, because more Chinese people pronounce some English words in a certain way, it's actually the native speakers who are pronouncing those words wrong. Now, does he have a point, or is he just talking nonsense like he usually does? <laughs> well, uh, it's, he's not talking nonsense in one sense, and he is in another. His, <laughs> his, his error is to use words like right and wrong, uh-huh. and correct and incorrect. His perception that there are more English speakers in the world that are non-native than native is absolutely right. Uh, I mean, for every one native speaker in the world, there are now five non-native speakers who are speaking English to a reasonable degree of fluency. Um, And so what we have is a situation which is now global that once upon a time was just national. So would Paul say the same thing about uh, the different dialects that are around England, for instance? 
So uh, up in the north, they say one thing. Down in the south, we say another. Uh, up in the north, they say, I was sat here. Down in the south, they say, I was sitting here. Mm. Now, is he going to say that up in the north, they're wrong, and down in the south, they're right? Uh, well, he might do, but uh, a, a more sensible approach would be to say, well, no, we're simply talking about two communities here who speak English in a different kind of way. They're both right in their own individual circumstances. One is called standard English, of course. The other is called non-standard English. But non-standard English has its justification, especially when you're talking about millions of people who use it. Now, transfer that argument to the world stage. We need a standard language because a standard promotes intelligibility. Mm. Stand, that's what standards are for. And the bigger a language gets, the more that standard is needed. So around the English-speaking world, standard English exists primarily in its written form. And then there are quite a large number of people who speak standard English because they've been taught to do so. At the same time, there are, is around the English-speaking world a huge number of regional dialects, international now as well as national. Um, so we're talking about Indian English and, and Singaporean English and Ghanaian English and Nigerian English and so on. And within those communities, a number of different sub-dialects of English in the Caribbean, for instance, uh, many different kinds of what we might call Jamaican English coexisting side by side, reflecting different community backgrounds. Now, you can't start talking about right and wrong in these circumstances. The terms have no meaning anymore. What you can talk about only is different varieties of the language, each of which is appropriate to its individual circumstance, would be inappropriately used if they were outside of that circumstance. Now, that's the principle. Now, when you start looking at individual cases, uh, like uh, a foreign learner who is, uh, say, um, breaking one of the rules of standard English for whatever reason, either because they haven't learned it right or more usually because that is the way it's developed in their part of the world. Mm. Then you've got an interesting transitional situation. So let's take the obvious cases first, British English and American English. So we say it's a quarter to four. A lot of Americans say it's a quarter of four. So they're wrong, are they? And we're right, are we? You see the problem. Mm. Uh, we wouldn't say that anymore. Once upon a time, people in Britain might have said that when America was just coming out of a war with Britain and we didn't like them very much. But you can't any longer say that something is wrong when it's spoken by 200 million or more people, uh, many of whom are educated or as better educated as we are. Mm. Now, let's go around the English speaking world and look at the way new usages are developing, reflecting the way in which the language has evolved in those particular countries. If we now go to China and we find that the vast majority of, of majority of people who have learned English fluently now in China, I'm not talking about early learning, I'm talking about fluent speakers of English in China, yeah. have all developed a particular usage that you would want to call Chinese English, if you like, or a, a feature of Chinese English. Mm -hmm. That's just like saying it's the equivalent of quarter of four. And now you either... Uh, respect it or you reject it. That's a personal point. But the point is that if you've got the Chinese prime minister over here um, making a big trade deal with us and he uses a Chinese feature of grammar, are we now going to say, oh, my dear chap, we're not going to trade with you because you've used a local feature of grammar? No, we're not. You know, we're going to respect it and, and realize that there are differences emerging in these new Englishes around the world um, that we just have to learn to live with. In the vast majority of cases, there is no problem of intelligibility at all, you see. Yes. 
You know, if these guys say informations, where you and I would say information, Mm. we know exactly what they mean. It's not a problem of intelligibility. It's simply a problem of a second language feature um, having come to be used by the majority of people, maybe all the people in a particular type of community. And interestingly, when you study a word like informations, you find actually that it is historically the case in English, British English as well. Chaucer says informations, for instance. Hmm. So it's not a question of right and wrong. It's a question of whether it's intelligible or not. It's a question of whether it's appropriate or inappropriate in the circumstance in which it's used. And the two criteria that we use are, first of all, intelligibility. Mm-hmm. Do we understand you? And secondly, the question of identity. Why are you speaking like that? Because we are who we are. Why are you American speaking in the way you speak? Because we're American. Why are you speaking like that in Britain? Because we're British. Why are you speaking like that in China? Because we're Chinese and so on. Now, every place in the world where English has come to be adopted, and that means virtually everywhere these days, uh, it is almost immediately adapted to reflect the locale, um, Mm. especially in vocabulary because, you know, the local fauna and flora and the myths and legends and the food and drink and all the things that make, you know, Nigeria or Singapore or China or Denmark or wherever what it is, um, is going to be reflected in local terms and idioms and cultural expressions uh, and to some extent pronunciation and grammar as well, but mainly vocabulary um, that shows the identity of that particular part of the world. And so English globally is always in a certain tension between the need for intelligibility, we have to understand each other, at the same time as the need for identity, we want to not lose our identity in a global anonymity. Mm. So how could uh, my students apply this to their attitude towards the way that they're learning English? I mean, for example, my French students who I teach in my classes often feel bad about their pronunciation and they feel you know a little bit ashamed and embarrassed about it because it's so French they say you know I mean I understand everything they say but they're quite hung up on the fact that they sound so French like for example that they can't pronounce th sounds you know in the word in words like strengths clothes 33 and so on and it seems impossible for them to fix it and they feel bad about it so uh, do they need to feel so bad about uh, the, the fact that they speak with s- such an easily identifiable French accent? Mm, yeah, this argument often comes down to accent. We've not talked about that at all, notice, in the last five, ten minutes. Mm. It's about grammar and vocabulary and things. Um, now, when you start talking about accent, we're dealing with a very different sort of set of circumstances. We're dealing with a certain kind of ability. Some people are good at accents, some, some are not. The bottom line is this. That once upon a time, yes, they would have felt bad about it because an awful lot of native speakers would have said, you are speaking English badly, you know, it's not, you know and, and they would make them feel really inferior. And that isn't so long ago. And actually, there are still people around the English speaking world who where you will find that attitude still. It's such a shame. Uh, simply because now there is no such thing as a single universally used educated accent as there was once upon a time. Yeah. Um, RP, received pronunciation, if that's the accent they're thinking of, is spoken by less than 2% of the population of England. It is a minority accent, mm. always has been a minority accent, but of course a very powerful one used by, you know, the Queen and, and all the rest of it. 
But when you actually look at RP around the English-speaking world, you find that it's important because it has a tradition behind it, uh, but it's it's minuscule compared with, say, American English and Indian English and all the other accents that you find out there. And so it isn't any longer possible, really, to condemn an accent simply on the grounds that it doesn't match up to the traditional standards you associate with received pronunciation. You have to treat it in its own terms as an index of local identity, so long as it doesn't interfere with the need for mutual intelligibility. Remember, it's that argument once yeah, again, yeah. balance between the two things. So when somebody says, um, I don't think my accent is very good, and I understand every word they've been saying, then my reaction to them is, you know, get develop a different mindset, person. You know, yeah. start thinking more positively about all this. Um, and if they say, I don't speak, I don't speak, receive pronunciation, my answer to that is, well, nor do I. Yeah, You know, the accent that people are listening to now is not RP. Hello, I could speak RP for you if you like. You know, I certainly could. You know, I'm not very good at it, but you know what I mean. <laughs> no, my accent is a mix of my background. It's yeah. partly northern, it's partly Welsh, it's partly um, educated RP. It's a mix of all sorts of things. And I am the norm these days. Mm. Uh, mixed accents are the norm everywhere. And so the first thing you have to do is try and Get the facts across to your students um, that English accents are now much more mixed than they ever have been in the history of the English language, that uh, there are now hundreds of millions of people who speak English in distinctively different ways. They're still mutually intelligible, but nonetheless, they're proud of their local accent um, because of the way it represents to them uh, the, the the identity of who they are, just like Scots people are proud to sound Scots and Irish people are proud to sound Irish. Well, why aren't French people proud to sound French? Mm. What is it about the mindset of you French people that makes you feel that? If you, I mean, if I if I'm learning French, look at the other way around. I learn French when I go to France um, and I speak French with my not very good French accent. Um, it doesn't bother me at all, so long as I'm making myself understood. I want to sound British. I am British yeah. uh, in my French. Of course, I will get beaten up by certain French people who will say, your French is terrible. <laughs> oh, oh, but, but there we are. I mean, that, that, there are always people like that. But you have to get over that yeah. uh, somehow. And one of the ways of getting over it in the teaching context is to make sure that there is a clear distinction in the classroom between um, comprehension and production. Listening comprehension is one thing. Production is another. Mm. Uh, when we teach a, a, a language, we, we will teach because of the tr tradition, because of the textbooks available, because of our own l teaching method, because of the exam boards. We'll teach a particular accent, usually, say, RP in this case, yeah. for production point of view. From a listening comprehension point of view, the main job of the teacher is to make sure that students are exposed to as wide a variety of different accents as possible in the real world. Otherwise, we're doing them no service. If they leave our classroom and think that the only accent they're ever going to hear is the one they speak, they are going to get into serious trouble. And they have to have, right from the very beginning, I would say, by the way, this is not a kind of advanced thing, mm. you know, lesson one, year one, month one, um, let them hear the, you know, whatever the sentence is that you've been teaching them. Hello, how are you? Or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Let them hear that 
in as wide a range of different accents as possible so that they develop a sense that, you know, some people say, how are you? And some people say, how are you? And all mm. the rest of it. Mm. And then they're developing this awareness of, of um, diversity, which inevitably, I think, will help to change their mindset. Yeah, that, I'm very glad to hear that because of uh, two reasons. One is that my students can now feel a little bit, well, they should, I guess, feel a bit more proud about their version of English as long as it's intelligible and appropriate. And the, and the second thing is that I can have fun exploring different accents in my classes yeah and it's easier to do these days luke than it ever used to be you know once upon a time how would you have explored accents in class oh probably Uh, yeah i I don't know yeah but now dead easy because the internet is there yeah and and every accent that i know of is um available on the internet uh, somewhere or other there's a huge um archive of english accents at a, a center in the united states for instance run by a guy called paul mayer m-e-i-e-r mm-hmm. uh, and you can log into that and and click on i want to hear an example of indian english i want to hear an example of uh, you know midwest american english or whatever it is and you hear all these accents out there it's wonderful hello everyone I'm stopping the interview right there. That's the end of part one. The conversation will continue in part two, where you'll hear me asking some questions sent in by listeners. And there were some really great questions, including things about predictions about English in the future, the role of artificial intelligence in language learning, the impact of Brexit on English in the world, and the way that Donald Trump and Barack Obama use English. Uh, So you can expect those points to be raised in uh, part two. I hope that you're enjoying listening to this and that you're able to follow some of the slightly complex points being made. Uh, David gave so many really interesting answers and made some very important and useful points, and he continues to do that in part two. Um, About the way that David Crystal speaks, I think that he speaks very clearly with that slightly Welsh or Scouse twang in his voice. Scouse means basically from Liverpool. Um, He lives in Hollyhead in northern Wales, which is not far from Liverpool, and he used to live in Liverpool for a while when he was a child, which probably accounts for the slight accent that he has, if you notice that. Um, As he said, um, his accent is a mix of different things caused by the time that he's spent living in different places and interacting with different people. Um, RP speakers in the southeast, locals in Wales and Liverpool and things like that. And it all contributes to the way that he speaks. He also happens to be very articulate, and I really admire the way that he expresses his thoughts about complicated things so clearly. And I hope that you agree that we really are rather lucky to have David Crystal on the podcast. And I think it's worth listening to this episode and the next one several times so that you can really absorb everything that he's saying, because he really does know what he's talking about. And there's a lot of knowledge there. I think that I should do a follow up episode to this and to part two, in which I just restate the main points that he made just to kind of consolidate it all. And I do plan to do that. Um, I could also talk about some of the questions which I didn't have a chance to ask David. Um, I also hope that you notice that David Crystal helped to clear up some of the things that I was discussing with Amber and Paul in episode 452. And I should go over those things again if I do a follow-up episode, just to make it all completely crystal clear. Pun intended there. I totally intended to make that joke, and I think that you should know 
that that's a brilliant joke to make everything crystal clear. It's obviously an amazing joke, which nobody has ever made before. And this is sarcasm now, but it also isn't. Uh, anyway, don't forget to check out davidcrystal.com for all of his work, his blog, videos of him speaking publicly, and more information, including the opportunity to send him a message if you want to. Um, I strongly recommend getting at least one of his books, um, which, and you know, most of them should be available from any good bookseller. Um, you could, for example, try um, his recent book, Making Sense, The Glamorous Story of English Grammar. And don't forget also that you can get audiobook versions of his work. For example, I listened to, and I've said this before, I've told you this before, I listened to You Say Potato, which is the one about accents in the UK. And I actually think the audiobook is better than the printed book because you can actually hear his son Ben doing all the accents. You could get that as part of a trial with Audible. Um, and remember, I have that deal with Audible. You can get a free audiobook if you go to audibletrial.com slash teacherluke. Audible trial, that's spelled A-U-D-I-B-L-E-T-R-I-A-L, audibletrial.com slash teacherluke, or click an Audible logo on my site. Um, they've got lots of David Crystal's work there. So you could start a trial with Audible, download your audiobook, any audiobook you want, Listen to it using the Audible app on your phone, and then you can cancel the membership within 30 days and not pay anything. Or you could um, continue your membership for about $15 per month and get another free book next month and another one after that and so on. You could consume a new audiobook every month if you want to, or you cancel your membership within 30 days and you don't pay anything, but you keep your first audiobook free. That's not bad. So anyway, this is the end of part one, and part two should be available for you very soon, and you can hear David ask, ans, answering, answering, yes, that's not a difficult word, answering, it's got a silent letter in it, where's the silent letter in answering, of course it's the W, so it's not answering, no, answering, yeah, I could normally say that word fine, but um, you know, stuff happens sometimes, doesn't it, yes, yeah, stuff happens, uh, yes, it does, anyway, you in part two, you'll be able to hear David answering questions from listeners. And that's brilliant because the questions were very diverse and David Crystal answers them. And I don't really need to say anything else, do I? David Crystal, the world's best man, uh, the, <laughs> the world's leading linguist, um, answering questions from the listeners. Um, it's wonderful stuff. I still can't believe that I spoke to him on the podcast I think it's amazing. And I think I need to contact other awesome people for interviews on this podcast. And I'm kind of creating a list of other people that I could invite onto the podcast uh, soon. Thank you very much for listening all the way up to the end at this point. Don't forget to join the mailing list to keep up with every new episode and to get convenient access to the page for each one where you'll find various bits of supporting information, transcripts, links, videos, and the wonderful comments section. Just visit teacherluke.co.uk and just pop your email address into the subscription form and Bob's your uncle. All right. Um, my site looks best on a computer. It still doesn't work very well on a mobile because I've got too many items in the menu. You have to keep scrolling down through all the menu items before you get to the actual content. Anyway, I look forward to reading your comments in the comments section. Um, actually, just before we wrap this up, I've got 
a reminder, one reminder, yeah, a reminder for you, and that is about uh, Lepster meetups because the the phenomenon of Lepster meetups is growing, it's spreading around the world. Um, so first thing is that uh, uh, listeners to this podcast are still getting together and spending time socialising in English. In Moscow, there is a group that hangs out every Sunday evening and their Facebook group is called Conversational English for Free Moscow LEP Club. You could find that on Facebook. Uh, they're also on, on VK as well. Uh, probably got a similar name on VK. You just search for like Moscow Lep you know, LEP or Conversational English or something. Conversational English for free, Moscow LEP Club. Also in St. Petersburg... Let me start that again. What's wrong with you, Luke? All right. Also in St. Petersburg, there is a similar group which uh, gets together on Sundays uh, and you can find them on Facebook by searching for SPB Lepster's Conversational Club. Um, also on VK, I would imagine. I understand that they also have get-togethers on Sundays, um, and there are some friendly people getting together, speaking in English, doing things like playing games and generally having fun. Um, get involved. There are some nice people there, including people like Christina from Russia, who won the Luke's English Podcast Anecdote Competition last year, and she often takes part. So friendly people, speaking English, playing games, hanging out, uh, get involved. Lepsters in Tokyo have um, got together a number of times, and I en- attended one of those get-togethers in April and did some stand-up in front of, I don't know, 60 people. Uh, you can hear all about that in my Trip to Japan episodes. In fact, it's part two, the Trip to Japan part two. Also, recently, a group got together in Prague in the Czech Republic um, and had a, a, a meet-up and a conversation. It sounds like it was fun. In fact, you can hear their conversation because it was recorded and published on Zdenek's English podcast. So if you actually want to hear the conversation they had as part of their Lepster meet-up, uh, Alexander from Russia joined them. And it was quite a diverse group with Zdenek from the Czech Republic and a couple of others. Uh, one guy, I can't, can't remember his name, who's half Czech, half French. A Japanese Lepster was involved as well. A really nice uh, group of people got together and you can listen to their conversation because it was published by Zdenek on his podcast. Um, you can find Zdenek's English podcast by searching for Zdenek's English podcast or alternatively, just go to the page for this episode and you'll see a link uh, where you can find all of his episodes. Again, I'm very flattered uh, because they talked mainly about Luke's English podcast, including like, you know, their favourite episodes and the stuff they liked about it in the first episode they ever listened to. But also, shock horror, they discussed their least favourite or worst episodes of the podcast, which was kind of interesting for me to listen to so check that out also if you're in spain i have heard rumor that there will be at least one meetup group getting together somewhere sometime soon somewhere in spain so you know um stay tuned for more information on that if you are thinking of setting up something similar if you want to do your own meetup group where you can get together and speak English and make friends and stuff like that, then uh, let me know because I can publicise it on the podcast and get the word out to the general public. Um, all right, so that's that. That's my little sort of reminder announcement about uh, meetup groups that are getting together. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, I'll speak to you again in part two, which will be coming soon. But for now, it's time to say goodbye. Bye, 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 bye. bye.
Thanks for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar and pronunciation teaching from me and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.